Well, we find ourselves this evening uh, in the concluding parts of Jephthah's judgeship, along with the rulers who came after him. Now, upon an initial reading of this chapter, it's seemingly difficult to understand why this account is here. But our goal tonight is to look at this account in light of the big picture so that we can understand why God put this here in the book of Judges and how he wants us to respond to, uh, to it. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for your loving kindness. We're grateful to you for your grace. And uh, especially as we look at how you have sovereignly worked in uh, spite of sin, we pray that you would help us just to have this bigger view and understanding of everything that you're doing um, so that you can receive all the glory and honor that you deserve. We're grateful for uh, just uh, getting us here safely. We pray that you would allow for us to uh, be able to unburden ourselves of some of the events of the day and even of the week uh, so that we can worship you undistracted so that you can uh, be honored as we ponder what we must do uh, in response to um, your word. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said by uh, many a historian that history is written by the victors. And those who win wars and conflicts have the right to tell history in a way that seems fitting to them. Because, after all, they are the ones who triumph. And so they can twist history in whatever perspective they want. What we see in the history books, especially when we're growing up and going through elementary school, uh, is often a simplified and glorified version of history. Growing up, I went to Thomas Jefferson Elementary School here in San Francisco. I was on 19th and Irving. And um, you know, because we're Thomas Jefferson Elementary, uh, we were told quite a bit about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, we were proud of the fact that he's the third president. We were proud of the fact that he wrote the Declaration of Independence, uh, that he facilitated the, per- the Louisiana Purchase and eventually abolished the slave trade. But what no one told us when we were elementary school kids, and probably for good reason, uh, is how he continued to keep slaves, even though he abolished the slave trade, and how he fathered many children through some of his slaves. You don't tell that to an elementary school kid, I guess. Um, But while American history uh, is a a little more candid once we get older about some of these sordid details about Jefferson's life, uh, we are also told uh, clean versions of American history for a purpose, Right? We're, we're told clean versions of American history to make us proud to be Americans and to help us have a high view of some of these founding fathers who helped shape this country uh, and make it into the place that it is today. Now, I am by no means ashamed to be an American. But what, but what I know about Thomas Jefferson today causes more pause in my overall consideration of him as a man, and more, more pause over his character. He's not necessarily the clean hero that the majority of American history makes him out to be. He had his flaws, and the nation had to deal with the consequences of some of those flaws afterwards, even today. The same thing can be said about Jephthah, except the author of Judges never attempts to hide who Jephthah was as a man. We don't get a clean, sanitized version of who Jephthah is. At best, Jephthah was a brave warrior whom God appointed to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. At worst, Jephthah was a canonized 
Israelite, an Israelite who participated in the worship of Yahweh in addition to the worship of the gods of the Canaanites. He was a syncretist. Though he appealed to Yahweh to deliver the Ammonites into his hands, we see from the foolish vow to sacrifice whatever came out of his household as a whole burnt offering to God that Jephthah did not have an exclusive faith in Yahweh that understood that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He, cre- he treated God just as he would any Canaanite God by saying, oh God, if you'll deliver me, then I will serve you by giving you an offering. He was trying to bribe God into doing his bidding. Now, despite the fatal flaw in Jephthah's character, especially the despicable and absolutely wicked act of offering up his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to God, something that God never commanded, never wanted, didn't even accept, God still used Jephthah to protect Israel. And what we'll see this evening is that though things may get worse, God does not stop working. God does not stop working. And we're given two reminders Two reminders of God's sovereign purpose despite depravity. Or in different words, we are given two reminders of God's sovereign purpose despite massive moral corruption. Now the first reminder of God's sovereign purpose is God sovereignly works through sinners. God sovereignly works through sinners. Now it's unclear at what point in time these next few verses occur after Jephthah's victory. But it's certainly after his victory. And we don't know necessarily whether Jephthah's, uh, um, whether Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to keep his foolish vow at this point. But again, um, we do know that it's after his victory over the Ammonites. Now, nonetheless, regardless of when this happened, a conflict is brewing. And it was brought right to Jephthah's front door. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says this, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned. And they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then? Have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So following Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites, the men of Ephraim, they they bear arms. They gather together and they cross over the Jordan River, uh, cross over the east side of the, to to the east side of the Jordan River where Gilead was, just as they had done uh, to Gideon in Judges 8. And as they march out to meet Jephthah, here is the message they send to him as they are challenging him. Why did you leave us out of the battle? Why did you leave us behind? We are willing to go fight with you, but you left us out of it. So we're going to burn your house down. Obviously, that's not a peaceful confrontation, is it? The Ephraimites are incensed that Jephthah did not call them to battle. And they are far angrier with Jephthah than they were with Gideon because with Gideon, they only argued with Gideon. And Gideon was able to win them over with words. But here with Jephthah, they're so angry at him that they said, we're going to burn your house down. 
because you forgot us. You didn't call us to join you. See, with Jephthah, what we have here is a threat of physical violence and death because of the perceived failure of Jephthah to call them to battle. Now, why was it such a big deal to the Ephraimites compared to the previous battle of Gideon? Well, most likely, it's because Gideon called the Ephraimites to join him in battle, but he just called them later. And he called them later. So they were able to join in in the mop-up effort, but here with Jephthah, they weren't even called at all. And as a result, they also don't get any credit You can't say that Ephraim was in on the battle because they weren't. They get no glory. They get no spoils of war. They actually missed out on a grand prize, right? Armor, weapons, any money, food, whatever the uh, soldiers had, uh, the soldiers of Ammon had, they missed out on all of that. And as a result, their anger was greater because they were completely denied a chance at war and the spoils of war. And so because their pride was hurt, the Ephraimites wanted revenge. They wanted to kill Jephthah, which is why they gathered together for war against Jephthah. You'll see a little bit more of that in a little bit. Now, Jephthah, he's not at all amused by this display of arrogance. And so he lashes out. He fights back. And he tells them, hey, I did call you. I don't know what you're talking about. I called you. You didn't answer. And so I took my own life in my own hands. I crossed over and I fought against the sons of the Ammonites all on my own. Now, it is important to note that Judges 11 does not record a call for help from Jephthah to the Ephraimites. We see that he went through the territory of Manasseh and he went to the territory of Gilead, but there's no record of him at all going to to Ephraim. That doesn't necessarily mean that a call to Ephraim didn't happen, um, but we're not really sure who to believe. And we're not sure who to believe because the author of Judges gives us two unreliable narrators. Right? Can you really trust Ephraim? They've already been proven to be arrogant, nasty, prideful people. Can't really trust them. But can you trust Jephthah, who's already proven himself to be compromised? a worshiper of other gods in addition to Yahweh, someone who also decides that Yahweh is just another god to be worshipped. It's hard to tell which one to believe. And we're not asked to figure out which one to believe. What is clear, though, is that the conflict is about whether Ephraim was invited to war or not. And Jephthah, he takes great offense to this claim that he did not invite them because he says that he took his own life into his own hands to go deliver himself and his people. And not only that, you got to remember too, it cost him the life of his daughter. It didn't have to because he made a really foolish vow, right? a foolish Canaanite vow to burn his own daughter Of course, he didn't know it was his daughter when he made that vow, but he made a foolish vow that basically said, God, if you'll have favor upon me, I'll worship you. But it cost him his daughter, so he's angry. He's angry. He's irritated. Naturally, we would be too. But as a result, Jephthah will not take this challenge from the men of Ephraim lying down. He's going to respond, and he's going to fight. And so if it were not enough, If it were not enough that Jephthah's personal integrity is being questioned here, in addition to the insult 
that uh, is added to the injury of losing his daughter, the Ephraimites were also hurling insults at his people. Verse 4 says this, um, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they, that is Ephraim, said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gilead, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. This is an insult. This is an insult to the Gileadites because they call them fugitives of Ephraim. Basically, what they're saying to the Gileadites the Gileadites, is you don't have tribal status. You're not one of us. You're not even a part of Manasseh. You're nobody. You guys are nothing but villagers. And it's true. The Gileadites did not have tribal status. But they just proved, did they not, that they were somebody because they took down the Ammonites. They just flexed their muscles and they won. They wiped out this invading army. And now they're being told, you guys are nobody. You don't even belong here because you live in between Manasseh and Ephraim. And so, as you can imagine, Jephthah and the people of Gilead, they are angry. They don't want to talk anymore. And Jephthah cuts off negotiations. He stops trying to talk the Ephraimites down like he did with the Ammonites. If you remember, he gave the Ammonites a chance to de-escalate. He appealed to them using history, telling them, you don't want to do this. You don't want to part in this fight because legally we have every single right to be here. God gave us this land. We get to live in it. If your God, Shamash, gave you your land, you live in that land. You don't come, into, you don't come after our land. Right? So he gave them a chance to de-escalate. He doesn't do that here with Ephraim. He just goes after them. He doesn't care that they're fellow Israelites. He doesn't offer them mercy. He doesn't offer them another chance. Ephraim, in all his pride, needs to be taken down, and they need to be taken down now. So Jephthah takes the men of Gilead, and he attacks the opposing delegation of Ephraim. Now, these next few verses are absolutely stunning. And not stunning in a good way. They're stunning because of the brutality that's described. Verse 5 to 6. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Just as Ehud had done in Judges 3, the Gileadites capture for themselves the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. They cut off the Ephraimites' path of retreat back into Ephraim. They're at the shore. They're kind of like, hey, you want to cross over the river to go back to your side? Who are you? What's your identity? And as they cut off that path of escape, they are absolutely determined to wipe out Ephraim. And their determination is evidenced in 
one of the most, if not the most dangerous vocabulary test ever mentioned. Normally, when we think about vocabulary tests, it's just like, okay, well, you know, I did that in elementary school. It's safe. The worst thing that could possibly happen to me is if I fail. Now, I know for some of you that failure is worse than death, but that is not the case, okay? These people were literally losing their lives over a vocabulary test. The Ephraimites, they asked the, I mean, uh, the Gileadites, they asked the Ephraimites to pronounce the word shibboleth. Um, and uh, that, that word doesn't really have a uh, clear meaning. We're not really sure what it is, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what the meaning of that word is because this was the basis by which the Ephraimites were being killed. Due to their regional dialect, the Ephraimites, try as they might, could not pronounce the word correctly. Instead of saying shibboleth, they said sibboleth. Right? There's a difference there. You can hear it. And since the Gileadites knew that the Ephraimites could not pronounce this word, those who failed to pronounce it correctly died at the hands of the Gileadites. It would be similar if the United States had some sort of conflict with Canada. And let's say, instead of deporting all the Canadians, we decided, you know what? We hate Canada. We're going to kill all the Canadians that are here in the United States. And the way that we're going to figure it out is we're going to look at your papers, and if you have a U right next to an O, you're dead. Not only that, but if you are talking to me and you say, nice day, eh? Or eh, excuse me, not eh. Nice day, eh? Right? Dead. Right there, on the spot. Don't gone. Right? Or if you say about instead of about, or perhaps if you call the bathroom the washroom, dead. Why? You're Canadian. That's just it. Of course, the United States and Canada would probably never get into a fight like that. We would never dispense with justice and commit civil civil right atrocities by killing people on site just because they're Canadian, but you get the picture. This was the basis by which the Gileadites were killing the Ephraimites. You say something wrong because of your regional dialect, you're dead because you are my enemy. But don't forget, the Gileadites were calling their fellow Israelites their enemies, which means that this is no mere war. This is a civil war that results from personal insults and threats. It's a senseless war that resulted in the death of 42,000 Ephraimites. That's the same death toll that later on in this book nearly wipes out the entire tribe of Benjamin. This is nearly the entire population of those who live in San Luis Obispo. An entire town, gone. And that ought to tell you something. I ought to tell you something. Both Ephraim and Jephthah were unreasonable here. Ephraim brought out their full fighting force to settle a score with Jephthah, to lodge a complaint with him. This is not just them merely showing off. They came to fight. They came with all of their armed forces basically saying, we're going to kill you, and we mean it. Do you see how many of us there are? We are going to wipe you out. So Ephraim's unreasonable. They just lost some money and some glory. It's not that big of a deal. They were itching for a fight, and they got one. 
but they didn't receive mercy. Jephthah and his men were ruthless. And they took life after life as a repayment of the previous insult, calling them fugitives of Ephraim. Now, look at what the text says here. It's, it says that the, that the Ephraimites, as they were trying to flee to go back to Ephraim, they were the true fugitives of Ephraim. Right? The insult that the Ephraimites used against the Gileadites, the Gileadites used against the Ephraimites and say, no, 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 we're not the fugitives of Ephraim. You are, and you're dead. And that's why Gilead slew them all, all 42,000. This is, this is making you uncomfortable. This is gross, isn't it? It's a little despicable. It's disgusting. Yes, God may have provided victory to Israel from the Ammonites, but great tragedy still strikes. Jephthah was raised up to prevent tragedy. He instead caused it. As his people turn against fellow Israelites and they kill them because of insult. Now while you may be tempted to feel bad for the Ephraimites, who were killed during the Civil War, it's important to remember that they're not innocent in this either. And neither were the Gileadites. God allows for their sin to work itself out, to judge them for their own sin, but that doesn't mean that he approved of these actions. They received the just punishment for their own wickedness, but what we see here is that there is further evil in the land. Yes, Gideon's children fought and killed one another. And while that was bad, that is nothing compared to what Jephthah and his men did. The devastation amongst God's people was not this bad with Gideon. It was with Gideon's family, but it is far worse with Jephthah. Yet, God accomplishes his sovereign purposes through sinners. And those sinners will always act as sinners. You can't expect those who are unsaved to act in a manner that saved people do. Right? For sinners, they're always going to act like sinners. And so we can't pretend that their good actions outweigh their evil ones. God is not mocked. And he will certainly repay those who commit evil for their deeds. But it doesn't mean that God will not use bad people to discipline his people. We've seen that through our study in Isaiah, God used foreign nations, wicked nations, to discipline his people. But they never got away with it, did they? Right? These foreign nations, they got what was coming to them for their sin. God will always, always judge sin. He will always deal righteously with injustice. And so that's why you have to remember that God will not be mocked. That he will not forget And even though you might feel like you've been wronged, that you've experienced injustice at the hands of others, you can know for certain that God will bring justice for you. God is not mocked. You might not see the results now, but God is not mocked. Justice is his. He will repay Now, verse 7 provides a summary of Jephthah's judgeship. And its lack of details indicates God's displeasure with Jephthah, though he still uses Jephthah as an instrument of divine uh, deliverance and discipline. It says here, 
Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. This is really different. Now, to, to you, it might just seem like a bunch of facts, but if you look back at the previous summary statements of the judges, you would see that in the summary statement of the judges, you find out how long they, ran, how long they judged and how they delivered, that there was peace in the land. You don't get that here. Right? All you see here is Jephthah judged the land for six years. Then he died and was buried. There's no information about who he delivered the Israelites from um, during this time, outside of what we already know about Ammon. And it doesn't tell us that, that there's peace in the land. We can assume that possibly, but we don't know that for sure. And so there's an omission of detail here to, to demonstrate, to prove that God's not entirely happy with this man, that there's not much else that needs to be said. He served his purpose. He's done. Jephthah was a criminal. He's a warmonger. So God does not elevate him as a man of honor. Jephthah's actions speak for themselves. And so as we consider the legacy of Jephthah, we must think about how God wants us to respond. How does he want us to understand Jephthah? Jephthah is a severely flawed character. And while he may have uh, had his nods towards worshiping the one true God, it's very clear that Jephthah did not know God. He did not know Yahweh well, because he treated Yahweh just like the God of the Canaanites. He just added him on to the list of gods that he already worshipped. And so, as you consider your walk with God, who are you more like? Are you like Jephthah, who worships God and appeals to God when it is convenient for you? Or you're trying to get something, and so you say, God I will worship you if you help me pass this test. I will worship you if you help me get my dissertation done. I will worship you if you help me get this job or this promotion. If you do these things, I will honor you. Are you like Jephthah in that way? Or are you trying to be more like Jesus, who depended upon God for everything, even something as small as who he should choose to be his disciples? God is not pleased by feigned loyalty and false worship. He doesn't care if you come to church every Friday, every Sunday without fail, and you sing songs and you do things for him. God doesn't care about that. What he cares about is your heart. What he cares about is whether you love him. If you could have heaven with all of your family members, all of your friends, everything that you ever loved and God wasn't there, and you can say, that's enough for me, you should be wondering whether you actually love God or not. Because what God cares about is not your ritualistic ability to do things. He doesn't care about whether you can check marks off uh, lists of obedience. What he cares about is your heart. Do you love him? Do you truly want to have a relationship with him? That's what he cares about. That's what he wants. That's why the greatest commandment in the scriptures is you shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not thou shalt not 
this thou shalt not. That is, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the only thing that God cares about. At least in terms of your righteousness, in terms of your salvation. Right? That's the indicator of your salvation. That is the evidence of your salvation. You can't fool him. He knows your heart. He seeks, as we know from John 4, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. You can serve here on youth staff. You can serve here as an usher, as security. You can do all those things. God doesn't care if you don't love him. You don't love him? This is another bunch of good deeds that will burn when everything is being weighed. Are you, are you building with wood, stubble, and straw, or are you building with those imperishable materials that will last through the judgment? Brothers and sisters, in what ways are you tempted to be like Jephthah in your approach to life? Do you have other gods in your life that you worship in addition to God? Is your own self-righteousness more important to you than doing what is right in God's sight? Are you more bothered by the fact that someone insulted you and messed with your dignity than you are doing what God tells you to do and letting love cover over sin? Or if they have severely sinned against you, you can't let love cover, uh, cover it, that you are actually willing to obey God, do what he wants you to do, go lovingly confront that person so that you can restore them to God and to yourself. Are you more interested in your own comfort? Are you more interested in the fact that you don't have to deal with the other person so you would much rather walk on the other side of the hall, turn around and not have to bother with that person? Are you more interested in your own self-righteousness than in doing what God tells you to do? That call for us to be like Christ, it's not just some Christian platitude that we just throw out there and say, be like Jesus! And everything will be okay. It's not that simple. It's a simple command, but it's incredibly difficult to practice, yes? It's incredibly difficult to practice. Because to be like Jesus, it means that you are like him in all of your thoughts. Which translates to all of your feelings. Which translates to all of your actions. If you're going to be like Jesus... It is an entire person transformation. You can't hold on to your pet sins. All of it goes. All of it we take off and we put on Christ's righteousness. Right? All of it goes. None of it stays. Can't let any of it stay. And I tell you this, as a pastor, it is so difficult to take all of it off because I tell you, it's so easy for me not to want to do what God wants me to do. When conflict shows up, I would much rather not deal with it. When I'm tempted to be bitter, I am, it's far more easy for me to continue to be bitter, to continue to not love the one who has hurt me. It is far easier for me to do that. 
because that's what's natural to a sinner like me. Maybe that's not you, but it's me. To do what Jesus wants us to do, to let love cover over sin and offense, so much more difficult, so much more difficult to lay aside insult, to lay aside my own pride, and to consider myself as nothing, to turn the other cheek, and to take more, because that's what Christ told me to do. Far more difficult. And so I ask you to consider the same thing. To consider the same thing. What is it going to take? What's it going to look like to be more like Christ in your life? When you say that you're working on your Christ-likeness, what are you actually doing? And yes, I'm intentionally provoking you right now. I'm intentionally getting in your kitchen trying to make a mess because, brothers and sisters, we always say we're doing stuff. Right? When someone asks us how we're doing, oh, I'm doing all right. How's your walk going? It's going okay. What you doing? Well, you know, I try and read every now and then. I try and pray when I remember. Um, but, you know, everything's okay. Right? Or is that just the guys that I talk to? I don't know. Right. Right. But are you actually doing something? Are you actually doing something? Right. When you say that you are working on growing in Christ's likeness, what are you specifically doing? When you say that you're reading, what are you reading? When you say that you're doing your devotions, how often are you actually doing your devotions? What are you doing? Are you just going, eh, oh, Psalm 26, there we go. I'm going to read the first seven verses because the whole chapter is too long. Uh, okay, done. And if you do that, I'm not trying to you know, kick at you too hard. But the whole point is, brothers and sisters, devotions cannot be done necessarily in five minutes, 15 minutes. Right? Because if you just read, you can read, you can grow your Bible knowledge, but if it's not translating to your heart, if it's not pushing you to do something, if it's not pushing you to have a greater view of who God is and what he is doing, you're just participating in ritual. You gotta be thinking about it. Right? When you say that you're praying, what are you praying about? What's the content of your prayers? If I were to ask you to list out your prayers, is it basically an entire grocery list of things that you want God to do for you? Or are you actually praying back to God scripture? Are you reflecting upon his majesty? Are you in awe of who he is? Are you asking him, Lord, your will be done, not my will. Here are the things I want, but ultimately your will be done, not mine. What does your worship of God lead you to do about the sin in your life? When we look at the fact that God sovereignly works through sinners, we are those sinners. And we're not, I mean, we can play the comparison game. We're not as bad as Jephthah, right? But, God, but we're still sinners. And God still works sovereignly through us. And so what I'm challenging you with, what I'm asking you to consider is how are you going to respond to this call to be used by God despite your sin? He's gonna do it no matter what, which means that when things happen in your life, you have a choice. You might not think that you have a choice, but you have a choice. Will you, in the moment of temptation, decide, you know, my sin is far more appealing, far easier to give into than what God wants. So, 
And because I'm forgiven anyway, so I'll just do it. God forgives me. Romans 6 tells me that. But also Romans 6 tells you, don't do that. Of course, it says it in more elegant terms than don't do that. But you know what I mean. God is sovereign. Don't miss that. He uses sinners to accomplish his purposes. And even as he does that, he expects us to do something about our sins. And that brings us to our second reminder of God's sovereignty, despite depravity, which is God sovereignly provides hope. God sovereignly provides hope. Now, no one can make the argument that verses 1 through 7 ends on a happy note. It doesn't, right? You have 42,000 dead because of Jephthah. There's a significant tragedy as some of the people of Israel turn against themselves in civil war. Yet, despite the tragedy, hope remains in the smoldering remains of what was supposed to be Israel's testimony of the greatness and holiness of God. Verse 8. Now, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan uh, died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now, outside of the information given here in these three verses, we don't know too much about Ibzan. We're not even sure which Bethlehem is being referred to. Is this the Bethlehem that Jesus was born in, or is it another Bethlehem? We don't know. But what we do know is that in contrast to Jephthah, whose family line was cut off due to his foolish and sinful vow and sacrifice of his daughter, Ibzan's family is, in contrast, large. He has 30 sons and 30 daughters, 60 children. Now, obviously, Ibzan had multiple wives. Otherwise, his poor wife would just have been in a constant state of misery as she's popping out these 60 children. Right? So he had multiple wives. Multiple wives. It's not just one lady, okay? Now, God, neither God nor the author of Judges, condemns Ibzan for his multiple wives. But we do know that God's design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 and the prohibition that he gave in Deuteronomy 17 and elsewhere, that marriage was only supposed to be between one man and one woman, not one man and two wives or two wives and, or three wives and one man or whatever. Right? It's one man, one woman. It's a one-to-one thing. It's a one-to-one thing. And despite Ibzan's failure to recognize the exclusivity that God intended in marriage, it is clear, it is clear that Ibzan was allowed to have this, these multiple wives so that he could have political success. He was able to author 60 marriages for his children while he was a judge in Israel. And most likely, these marriages cemented his power as he entered into agreements with strong families throughout Israel. You have 60 children and you make political alliances through your marriages. That's a lot of clout that this guy has. And the, while the, the total impact of these marriages is speculative, Ibzan certainly had an impact on the political scene of Israel. And he begins to set the groundwork for the unification of these tribes through these marriages. And remember that since Joshua's death, the tribes of Israel have only been loosely affiliated They're off doing their own thing. The only thing that matters to the tribes is 
the business of the tribe. They don't care about what's happening to Judah down the road. They don't care about what's happening to Naphtali down the road. All they care about is what's happening here in Ephraim, what's happening here in Manasseh. But what we see here with these marriages is the beginning, the forming of alliances, the reunification, in a sense, if you will, um, of, of Israel through all these marriages. It's a loose alliance, it's a loose alliance but it's still an alliance. Right? And it's happening during the seven years of Ibsen's, Ibsen's judgeship. We're not told, just like with Jephthah, whether there was any deliverance, whether there was any peace, but we know that he judged Israel for seven years. He was able to have all these marriages for his children and that he died and was buried in Bethlehem. That's what we know, right? Not much else is, need, uh, is needed for us to know uh, by the author of Judges. That's what he wanted us to know. Why? Well, we'll, we'll see a little bit more um, as we're, we're told even less about this next minor judge, Elon the Zebulonite. Elon the Zebulonite, verse 11 to 12. Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ahijan in the land of Zebulun. Now, again, we don't really know anything about Elon. He's identified as a Zebulonite, which means that he's from the northwestern part of Israel. Uh, so far, we've been focusing on the middle part of Israel, the Transjordan area. Um, Elon's northwest. Right? Why is he included in this record of the judges when all we know is that he reigned for 10 years? Honestly, I don't know. Right? I don't know what, well, I'm not really sure exactly what to do with, with, um, with, with Elon, except for I do know that what this is an indication of is that God did not forget his people. God did not forget his people. Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. They're off doing their own thing. Didn't care about the honor of God. Didn't care about the worship of God. They were allowing for the Canaanite influences to come into their lives and essentially making them not special people. And yet, despite that, God raised up Elon to reign as a judge for 10 years. To judge for 10 years. And it's because he did not, God did not forget his people. Despite their constant failures, God provided judges for his people who would assist them in protecting them for a time. He delivered them from their enemies as a mercy towards them because of his compassion on them. God did not have to deliver his people. When they decided to go off on their own, to pursue their own sin, God could have said, you made your choice, you deal with the consequences. He could have said that. And he could have left them alone. He could have left them to die, and he would have been right to do so. But yet, because God chose Israel, because he set his love on them, he did not remove that love from them. He continued to have mercy upon them. He cared about their situations, and so when their suffering becomes too great, he provides that mercy. But the impact of the judges... It always came and went. There are always these cycles. There are always cycles. The turnover of the judges is high. There always needed to be a judge to deliver Israel. And that points Israel to the realization that they need something stronger than a judge. Judge is helpful. Judge is good. But judges were regional. And only for 
and they only helped out for a certain amount of time. So what they actually needed was a king. What they actually needed was a king, as God prescribed in Deuteronomy 17. And so we get even closer to that realization of needing a king with the next judge, Abdon. Abdon. Verse 13. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel after him. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried in, at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. We don't really know, again, much about Abdon. These three judges that were just listed are what we call minor judges. We don't, they're, they're minor in their role. They're minor in their coverage. They're minor judges in that sense. So we still don't know too much about Abdon. We don't know anything about his father, Hillel, nor do we know too much about the Pirithonites. Now, the town of Pirithon is mentioned in 2 Samuel 23, but that's chronically, chronologically after Judges 12. So is there significance there? Probably not reading backwards. Right, probably not reading backwards. Maybe reading forwards, but not backwards. But what is interesting here about Abdon is that he was an older judge. He had 40 sons, and he was also able to see his 30 grandsons. And these grandsons were not young children. They were older. They were able to ride donkeys on their own. And so you have 70 of Abdon's progeny riding on donkeys. This is, a, in a sense, a bit of a one-upmanship on Ibzon in the sense that these children and grandchildren were riding on donkeys. Now, you might be wondering, why are donkeys important? Donkeys are nothing but animals. And that's true, except for the fact that donkeys were significant in ancient times because dignitaries would ride on them. Balaam, the prophet, rode on a donkey because he was someone who was important. That's why he rode on a donkey. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is foretelling what blessings would come upon his sons, for Judah, he predicts that the king will bring in, the, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate king from Judah will bring in such a strong period of prosperity that the land itself will be really robust, that even the vines will be strong enough for the king to tether his donkey to it. Now, if you think about it, that was, is absolute foolishness, right? Who in their right mind would try and tether their donkey? I mean, you wouldn't, even t you wouldn't even tether a dog to a vine, right? You tether your dog to the vine, your dog's gone. Who would tether a donkey to a vine? That's the amount of prosperity that's in the land. That's the, the strength that's in the land, right? God will bring such prosperity into the land, such water and... and um, nutrients and blessing into the land, that even the vines will be, will be strong enough that they'll be able to hold a donkey in place. And the future ruler of Israel puts his riding donkey on that vine, tethers him there. But he's riding a donkey. In 2 Samuel, when Absalom is riding into battle against David's forces, he has the audacity and the foolishness to ride in on a donkey. He's riding into battle on a donkey. Do you ride into war on a donkey? No. You ride a horse into battle because they're fast and they're taller. A donkey puts you right in the sword swing of someone 
who's riding a horse. So you do not ride a donkey into battle. Absalom's an idiot, but he's a prideful idiot. He thinks, I'm strong. You can't stop me. I'm the king. So I'm going to ride the king's mount in peacetime into wartime because you can't touch this. And he dies. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what is he riding? He's not riding a horse. He's not riding an elephant. He's riding a donkey. Why? Because he's making a claim that he is the king and the Pharisees know it. When he rides in on that, on that donkey, the Pharisees know he's making a claim. He's making a claim to kingship, and that's not cool. Right? But that's what Jesus does because he is the king. And so when you see that Abdon's sons and grandsons are all riding on donkeys, you get the sense that they're important. They're not necessarily saying that they're royalty, but they are saying we have authority. We are to be respected. Now, it's unclear what the political power structure was like under Abdon and his family. But we know that they're making this claim to authority in Abdon's eight years of judgeship. Now, this survey of the minor judges that follow the conclusion of Jephthah's judgeship is important for us to consider because it provides a bud of hope in the pile of ashes that Jephthah has left in his wake. Jephthah leaves us wondering whether all of those who will judge Israel will be like him. Are they going to be ruthless criminals who only have regard for themselves? Are they going to burn everything down in their sin, or are they going to be different? We don't know the spiritual condition of these minor judges, but we do know that God is using them ultimately to plow the ground, to get it ready for what's coming later. He's using them to point to something greater that is to come. Israelite cannot continue, uh, Israel cannot continue to exist as a group of loosely affiliated tribes. This family needs to be reunited if they're going to take on the form of witness that they're supposed to take on, that they're supposed to tell the world, God The God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one who has made everything. He is the one who reigns. If you want an answer to your sin problem, you need to come through us. That was supposed to be their witness. That was supposed to be their job, and they failed to do it. And so if they're going to do that, if they're going to fulfill God's purposes, they need to come back together, and God is going to get them there. It's nothing that Israel did on their own. God is going to do it. And he's going to do it by establishing for them a king. And they're not ready for a king yet. But God is slowly paving the way for his king to come in his timing. After all, it was not Israel's idea for them to have a king. It was God's idea, which is why he makes provision for the king in Deuteronomy 17. At this point in history, they don't have a king because they're not ready for a king. They don't see their need for a king. But eventually, they will get there. They will get there. We know that because that's when the people rebel against Samuel and God, and they demand that they have a king over them like the kings of the nations. They're not supposed to have a king like the kings of the nations. They're supposed to have a king over them who will lead them to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone, which is why God takes it personally when they say, Samuel, 
give us a king like the kings of the nations. They're putting their hope in a political leader when they should have put their hope in God. That's what God's eventually trying to get them to, but they're not there yet. He needs to help them see that they need a king on their own, and that's what he's doing. Now, we're, you know, when we're unsure of what God is doing in our lives, we can place our trust in him because we know that he is sovereignly working, just as he was working here in the book of Judges. He's going to get them to where they needed to he, he was going to get them where they needed to be. He's going to get us where we need to be. Right? Sometimes God needs to capture our attentions because we are so caught up in our own lives. We're distracted with what's right in front of us that we can't see what else God is doing. And so sometimes God needs to capture our attention in order to show us where he needs us to go, where he wants us to go. We are so headstrong in our ways that sometimes we need to be broken before we can get built up. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not promising or saying to you that if you would only humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you let God break you, that you will get the desire of your heart and that you will receive healing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that because that's not my promise to make. I can't do anything about your situation to make it better. However, what I can say is that God's plan is surely in motion. You may not see it, but God who exists outside of time and sovereignly works to bring us to glory is the one who provides the bud of hope in the ashes. And knowing that God is doing something gives us the confidence that we need in the darkness that the darkness will not win out. That a glimmer of light and hopes is still there and it will erupt as God makes his will known, as God makes his plan known. Unlike other historical accounts that omit the negative aspects of history, the author of, the judge, of Judges pulls no punches in the way that he describes what God's people were doing in the time of the Judges. While Israel does win and they have the right to shape history in the manner that they please, God ordained for us to see the darkness, the pervasive darkness that existed amongst his people as Israel worshipped other gods in addition to him. And now, while God still uses syncretistic Israel, syncretistic Jephthah, to deliver his people, Jephthah was not without consequence. He had negative effects on the land, and he plunged them into further depravity with his sin. But despite his sinfulness, despite the fact that he worshipped other gods in addition to the one true God, we see two reminders of God's sovereignty despite depravity. We're reminded that God sovereignly works through sinners to accomplish his purposes. So we shouldn't be surprised when sinners sin. We shouldn't be surprised when things seem to go south. We also learn that God sovereignly provides hope of what is to come when we are uncertain of when and where hope is going to come. Our God is always working. He worked in the lives of Israel to pave the way for his son to come so that Jesus could die on the cross for our sins. And when he rose from the, from the dead, he was able to pay for all of the sins for those who believed in him and repented of their sins. 
That was what God was doing then. Now in human history, God is sovereignly working to pave the way for the coming of his son and to pave the way for those who believe to go home. Brothers and sisters, this is not your home. This is where we live now. This is not where we're going to be later. Right? Home is where God is. Home is where Jesus is. That's where home is. So you set your, your sights, you set your eyes, you set your hope and your focus on home. You set your focus on Christ because you know that's where you're going to be. And when you're not certain of how you're going to get there, you know at least that God is going to get you there. And that's where you can place your confidence. That's where you can place your hope in the fact that God is going to get you home. We know the end. We know that glorification is coming. We know that Christ is coming to reign and he's coming to judge. We know that. And that God will do his part to get us there. And as a result, let us take courage. Let us take heart. Live in light of the future. Push forward through the power of the Holy Spirit instead of idly waiting for God to do something as if he doesn't use people to accomplish his purposes. He does. He has. Always will. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful to you for this book, for just these people that we can learn from. We see the absolute tragedy that comes in the life of Jephthah, and yet, we can be encouraged knowing that you still work through sinners. And if you can work through Jephthah, you can certainly work through us. And so we pray that you would give us all hope, all strength, all power, because we know that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness to do what's right to please you in all respects so that you can be glorified. We pray that as we live in light of the future, as we live in light of the glory that is to come, that we would be motivated by a desire to see you, and we would be motivated by a desire to see you glorified so that we would be willing to take the steps that we need to change in our lives so that we can get more sin out and more Jesus on us so that we can show the world that there is power in the name of Jesus, that deliverance from sin is possible, that Christ-likeness, though difficult, is your plan for us, that you desire our sanctification. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us in this end. Help us to live to your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.